You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual The headline did its job. In fairness, it caught my attention. I read the story. But I clicked through after seeing the headline, which isn't something I usually do because like everybody else, I read a lot more headlines than I do actual stories. But I clicked through to read Jack Kelly's piece in Forbes last week because the headline pissed me off. I don't know. I guess I felt in that moment like I needed something else to get upset about because there isn't enough. And that's how I found myself on the website of Forbes, the capitalist tool doing a little hate reading, a little outrage stroking. The headline of the piece read, Americans are excessively eating, drinking, smoking pot, playing video games, and watching porn while quarantined. What I expected to read on Forbes, a publication that valorizes heroic CEOs who pay their employees so little they have to go on food stamps to survive, what I expected to read at Forbes was a piece scolding Americans for all the eating, drinking, bong-hitting, and porn-watching we've been doing over the last month. Because there's an implicit value judgment in the word excessive. No, wait, it's, it's an explicit value judgment. When someone accuses you of drinking to excess, they're not paying you a compliment. If you're doing something, anything, excessively, you're doing too much of it. But that wasn't Kelly's point. He doesn't think Americans are eating, drinking, fapping, or smoking too much weed. He doesn't want us to dial it back. But if you only read the headline, and screen grabs of that headline are still being passed around on social media this week, you would think some asshole at Forbes, the capitalist tool, wants you to feel bad about your coping mechanisms, which, if they're anything like mine, pretty closely track the rest of that headline. In reality, in the actual piece, Kelly comes to our defense. He's got the backs of all the new day drinkers and wake and bakers out there. The piece is actually a slapdown of some other dude named Jeremy Haynes. He's a corporate brand manager or something. I read his bio on Twitter. I still can't figure out what he does. But he's apparently branching out into motivational tweeting. Here's what Haynes tweeted last week that inspired Kelly's piece. If you don't come out of this quarantine with either a new skill, starting what you've been putting off like a new business, or more knowledge, you did never lack the time. You lacked the discipline. So basically, you know, get to work, you lazy, unemployed fucks. Kelly at Forbes ain't having it. Whether the tweet was meant to be motivational or self-serving, the message is a tone-deaf directive to millions of Americans who are desperately trying to cope with their changing new reality. And in our new reality, 10 million of us are unemployed. 50 million of us could be unemployed soon. And a deranged lunatic with authoritarian tendencies is running the country and we have no idea when or how this is going to end. Shit is scary. And in the same way some people react to stress by getting horny while other people's libidos tank, some of us react to stress by getting busy, by working. Others react to stress by getting high. Kelly goes on, it's unhelpful to chastise people who are just trying to hang on and make it through the day. And most people are not heeding the hustle porn huckster's advice. They are choosing to decompress instead. The stats Kelly cites about how we're decompressing are staggering. Booze sales up 75%. Online alcohol sales up 250%. 
The sale of pot in states with legal weed through the roof, as it surely is in the states with illegal weed. Oreos in particular are flying off store shelves right along with toilet paper and porn consumption way up. And a, a brief aside, does anyone else think it's weird how we talk about watching TV and seeing movies but consuming porn? Anyway, I wanted to second the actual point Kelly's making in his piece. If smoking weed and watching some porn makes it more pleasurable to stay at home, then by all means, watch some porn and smoke some weed. And if filling the house with Oreos makes it easier to stay at home, fill the house with Oreos and weed. Because if there was ever a mass-produced industrial sandwich cookie that needed the assist that only weed can provide, it's Oreos. Oreos. I'm not a fan. But I can say without having read anything else he's ever written and not wanting to spoil it for myself by reading anything else he's ever written, I am a fan of Jack Kelly's. And let me fix that headline for you, headline writers at Forbes. Americans are doing what they need to do to stay home and stay sane. And anyone who doesn't like it can fuck the fuck off. All right, coming up on today's show, comedian and author Aaron Gibson from the Throwing Shade podcast joins me. She takes a question with me on the micro and a couple of more questions with me on the Magnum. The Magnum is the edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. Twice as much show, more guests, no ads. That's the Magnum Savage Lovecast. But Aaron Gibson's with us today for both the micro and the Magnum. Hi, Dan. Here's a quarantine sex story for you and your listeners. My partner is a queer man who's exploring his gender identity. A month or two ago, when I was cleaning out my closet, he saw a formal gown that I had pulled out for a donation because it was a little bit too big for me. It is a beautiful dress, black halter top with a metal chain at the neck and floor length silky pleats that fade from deep pink to deep purple. It caught his eye and he bravely asked, hey, can you keep that for me? My partner and I are almost the exact same size, and I knew it would fit him perfectly. So this dress hung in the closet until last weekend, when after round one of hot sex, where I was the recipient and the focus, he asked to play dress up, and I got to pick the outfit. So, of course, I went for that dress. He looked so beautiful in it. I love zipping it up and locking the metal chain at the back of his neck. He got to twirl around a bit, and then I got to fuck his ass just like he'd fantasized about. Afterwards, he left it on for a few hours wearing the dress and a butt plug while he lounged around the house. Finally, he came back to me and I held him while he masturbated. It was so hot and I'm so honored by his vulnerability and playfulness. This was definitely something new for us. Thanks for all you do. Well, I think that was our hottest quarantine sex story to date. Thank you for calling and sharing it. And there are some perks to the lockdown. A lot of hardship has been imposed, but some people are finding the time in the space that they needed, they didn't have before, to explore with their lovers if they're lucky enough to be sheltering in place with their lovers. Thank you for sharing. If you, listener, have a quarantine sex story that you'd like us to open the show with in the next few weeks, give us a buzz, 206-302-2064, and share your quarantine sex story. We might open next week's Savage Lovecast with it. Hi, Dan. Uh, Mid-20s by lady here. Uh, I have a bit of a quarantine predicament that I would love some help with. So um, I've decided that I should break up with my boyfriend, um, who's my primary partner. Um, there's no really like key reason other than um, I've just started really feeling like we're more friends than like romantic partners. We've been together for about a year and a half, um, and we are in an open relationship. Um, I have two secondary partners who are a couple, um, and my boyfriend's been super supportive of that relationship and um, everyone involved. 
seems to be really happy with it for the most part. I would say that like he's just basically like my best friend. We're really close, um, but I just haven't really been feeling like the the romantic spark anymore. So I have been thinking about ending things with him for a while, but I was I've been having a hard time kind of trying to figure out um, how and when to do it. I haven't really seen him in almost two weeks because we've been um, dealing with the shelter in place in my city and uh, we've been all taking it super seriously. So I really haven't seen anyone other than my roommates. Um, so it's been hard trying to figure out um, like how to um, stay connected with him during this time also. Um, so I kind of feel like now would be like maybe the best time to do it um, since we're already like social distancing from each other. So there is one kind of curveball in this whole situation, which is that the other night it was really just me and my one roommate who were home and we got kind of drunk together and ended up having like super super hot forbidden quarantine sex um it was really fucking amazing um and since then we have like had sex multiple other times i feel really bad about cheating on my partner and i know that a lot of it has to do with the fact that like we're all just in this really crazy situation and i'm not really worried about things getting like super weird with my roommate we're we're pretty good friends and we talked about the fact that it was like just just because of like the the isolation that we were doing this so i guess my questions are number one like how terrible should i feel about this i do feel bad but not maybe not quite as bad as i should also when i break up with my partner i'm not exactly sure like how and when would be the best time um and whether or not i should tell him also because of the isolation i'm not sure if i can like even really hug him or touch him when that happens so thank you for everything you do um and any advice you have would be greatly appreciated we'll start with question two when would be the best time to break up with your boyfriend i think you should err on the side of breaking up with your boyfriend now not waiting until the shelter in place order is lifted so that you can break up face to face just on the off chance that your boyfriend is isolating with someone that he'd like to fuck and who'd like to fuck him, that he's not fucking because he's committed at the moment to you. I think you should release your boyfriend in the same way that you've already released yourself. This relationship is over. You know it. I know it. Everybody listening knows it. The only person who doesn't know it is your boyfriend. That's why you felt free to... Go and fuck your roommate and you feel appropriately bad about it, but not overwhelmingly bad about it because you've already moved on. You know that this takes nothing away from your boyfriend that he hasn't already lost. And while it's a serious technical foul that you were fucking someone before you ended this relationship or fucking someone without his permission, you say you're in an open relationship, obviously permission or, or foreknowledge or being informed was, I assume, one of your rules or we can infer one of your rules and you violated that rule. The relationship with your boyfriend is over and that's why you don't feel that bad. Serious technical foul, but you don't feel that bad and nor I think should you. These are extreme circumstances that we're all under. It's a lot of pressure that we're all under. People seeking what release they can, where they are, with the people that are available to them. I think, I don't want to say everybody gets a pass for that. I think everyone can wrap their heads around that and how that might happen. So, you should feel a little bad about it. You should feel bad enough about it that you're so motivated as to rectify the situation, which is not to jump in a time machine and refrain from fucking your roommate. It is to let your boyfriend know what you know and I know and everybody else listening knows the relationship is over and he is a free agent now. Just as you have regarded yourself as clearly a free enough agent to fuck your roommate, he can now regard himself as a free enough agent to fuck whoever 
might want to fuck him who's available to him at this moment. Hello, Dan. I'm a gay man living in a city in the Midwest. I'm calling today because unfortunately, two weeks ago, my partner's father was admitted to the hospital and tested positive for COVID-19. Unfortunately, within a week of being admitted to the hospital, he passed away from complications due to the virus. This loss has been devastating for my partner, for his family, and for myself. His dad was a great guy who really made me feel like part of the family. I'm calling today because although I've lost people in my life, um, and I certainly consider this a loss as well, I've never been with a partner while they've lost someone, especially a parent. I'm just wondering what advice you have for me to help him get through this grieving process. To be honest, I feel like this grieving process isn't going to be a normal one. His family has kind of looked to him to lead them and guide them, and he's been placed in charge of the funeral arrangements. Obviously, they can't have a normal funeral, and unfortunately, his father will be cremated without the family being able to gather until a later date. I'm worried that once this is all over, my partner may just collapse into a deep depression. He's already experiencing a lot of anxiety, and his doctor has put him on medication. I've told him I'll be there for him, and I absolutely will be, but I'm not sure if I know how exactly to do that, especially given that this is going to be a long-term grief. What advice do you or your callers have for me to help my partner heal from this terrible loss? 12 years ago last week, my mother died. She'd been sick for a long time, for five years, but the death was still sudden. She'd recently, uh, right before she passed, been told that she could expect to live another two to five years. And eight weeks later, she was dead. Thanks to a woman working for an airline at a counter at SeaTac Airport, I was able to get on an oversold flight to Tucson, Arizona and see my mother before she died. Always really grateful to that woman at SeaTac Airport. I looked for that woman for years so I could thank her personally, but never managed to find her. And I was devastated. I was completely devastated by my mother's death. There was a wake. There was a funeral. There was a big reception after the funeral, a big Catholic funeral, church basement, reception. And it was my experience uh, in grief that the funeral and the wake and the reception, while emotionally important, weren't helpful for me in the grieving process. They were almost performances that we as the children and family had to, to get through before we could start grieving. To have that reversed, to be thrown into the grieving process before you can formally mark the passage of my mother or the, mark the passage of your uh, father-in-law, I, I imagine that would be incredibly painful. I also think that if you shift your perspective a bit, perhaps you could see it like this. At least in my experience, the, the funeral in the wake, I didn't start grieving until after. I had to get through that uh, before I really could feel my feelings your partner is feeling his feelings right now. He doesn't have to hold it together for a funeral. He can throw himself into his grief, which is what I had to do. In a way, I had to lean into my grief. I had to let it fully move through me, which meant being devastated, being sad, uh, self-medicating a bit with my favorite self-medication uh, supplement pot, bursting into tears in coffee shops and restaurants and grocery stores. I was a wreck for months 
And it was important, I think, to be allowed to be that wreck. It was important for me that my husband, my kid, and my friends didn't try to make me feel better because I had to feel all that shit. What mattered was having my grief acknowledged by the people in my life uh, and the importance uh, that my mother, the important role she played in my life, acknowledged. So my advice would be would let your partner feel his feelings, acknowledge his feelings, hold him, verbalize that it's shitty, that it's backwards, that he's you know, being thrown off the deep end into the grief pool without the formality of the funeral first. But he was going to be where he is now eventually anyway. He is, was going to be where he is now with his grief, in my experience, after the funeral. Maybe this is a blessing and that he can process his grief. And I don't think you ever fully get over it, but you say things like fully process his grief before the funeral. And unlike me, and who's a wreck at his mother's funeral, who went through it in a, a, a daze, I was a zombie. Perhaps your partner, because he's grieving and feeling this pain now, instead of holding it back until after the funeral, the funeral for his father, when circumstances allow for it to be held, will be a more joyful experience for your boyfriend or your partner, that it'll be more of a celebration because your partner and his mother and siblings and friends and family all will have moved through really the worst stages of their grief and arrive at that event ready to reconnect with each other and celebrate his father's life. My heart goes out to your partner and his family. My, my heart also goes out to you. What you're doing right now, the person that you have to be at this moment for him, that's a stressful role to play. That is a lot of, as they say, emotional labor. And so my heart goes out to you as well. Hey, Dan, 19-year-old gay male from the East Coast here. And I have a question about this thing that I sort of had three months ago. So I was traveling abroad over winter break and, you know, as one does, I opened up Grinder, and I started talking with this really, really nice 24-year-old guy who was just like super sweet and like you know, we sort of talked for a while and then I, I, uh, I went over to his place and it was great. I mean, we, we, we had a lot of fun. We drank wine. We, we sort of, we talked for hours and got to practice my foreign language skills because, you know, he spoke French primarily and, and it was amazing. And, and the next day we saw each other again. And so we had this just like very intense 48 hour prolonged thing that was incredible for me and just sort of like helped me discover what I was like missing from previous interactions with other men and sort of was just really, really um, like a confidence booster for me. And so that's sort of how things went in December. And then I get a text from him. Hey, I miss you. Call me when you get this. And of course, you know, not having contacted him in about a month, I was like kind of jumping because it was someone I had shared this very significant experience with. And so, you know, I text him, um, yeah, sure, I can call you at some point. And so we, we, we talk briefly, but sort of time zones get mixed up because obviously, you know, not in the U.S. And I I find out in trying to figure out when he's available, if he's, you know, romantically available by accident. And he um, lets me know that he got back together with his ex, whom 
at the time of our interaction, he described as super emotionally clingy, like not doing well sort of um, with their breakup, but now they're back together and in quarantine. And now he's sort of being cagey with me about what their arrangement is and like how I fit into the picture and like why he reached out to me, despite the fact that he got back together with his old boo like three weeks ago. So I'm just not sure what to do and how to get like a straight answer out of him. 30 years ago, God, a little more than 30 years ago, 30 years ago and change. I was in Amsterdam for a weekend alone and it was winter and I wound up in a gay bar on the gay street. I think it was a leather bar on the leather bar street of gay bar streets in Amsterdam. Not in any leather. And I met the only guy there who wasn't in leather, who was a German med student living in Amsterdam, going to school. I have something for the Deutsches Brockes, I think. And we went home, picked me up. We went back to his student apartment, which was on a beautiful street with a canal. It was gorgeous. And we basically didn't leave his room for the next 36 hours. I spent the whole weekend with him. And it was lovely. And he was amazing. And the sack was incredible. But when I left, I left knowing, and he knew when I was leaving on that Sunday, that we would never see each other again, that this was a wonderful thing, just one of those things, this wonderful thing that had just happened to both of us. But in a world without social media, in a world where we were both students and our lives weren't very stable or settled, uh, and in a world where long-distance phone calls were incredibly prohibitively expensive, we weren't going to remain in touch. It wasn't possible. I think that experience is foundational in my theory of and my promotion of the concept of the successful short-term relationship. That guy and I, that German med student in Amsterdam, we had a really terrific short-term relationship. Duration, roughly 36 hours. Location, Amsterdam. Place in my life, history. <laughs> it happened to me a long time ago. It's a memory I treasure and value and I will always have a soft spot in my heart and a lump in my pants for that guy. He was great. He was really wonderful. His comfort with himself and with being gay at the time, it was the 80s, and his sexual interests really helped me get more comfortable with who I was and who I am and what I wanted. And I'll always treasure his memory. And that's what I would encourage you to do here. You had a great weekend while you were abroad with some hot dude. You spent two days together. You're only 19 and you're separated by an ocean and a pandemic. And now he's in a relationship again with someone that he described to you, an ex that he described to you in unflattering terms. People usually don't talk their exes up with someone they're trying to get into bed with. So you may not have heard about any of his exes good non-clingy qualities, but there's something about his ex that he wanted to get back together with him and he has, which means there's all sorts of reasons why you shouldn't be fantasizing that this could become an LTR and rather embracing the successful STR that it was. You had a really wonderful weekend, the 19-year-old gay dude in Europe. You met a hot dude and you spent a couple of days together. Dig into that experience. See if there's any lessons in there for you from that experience, as I have found lessons in my experience with that German med student in Amsterdam so many years ago. Those will always be with you. Value those. This guy, pandemic, oceans apart, his romantic entanglements, he probably can't always 
be with you. So if he wants to be buddies because of social media, you have this option now that me and the German med student then didn't have, which was to remain in contact, to follow each other on Instagram, to follow each other on Twitter or Facebook and remain in each other's lives from afar and perhaps chit chat every once in a while. That's an option that you have. Perhaps you shouldn't avail yourself of that option or those options if it makes it harder for you to move on from this experience and to look around once we're all let out of the house and see if there's anybody in your life a little geographically closer, a little more emotionally available to you that you might want to be with, who wants to be with you and who can be with you. Because as much as you want to be with this guy, I don't think he wants to be with you in the same way and logistically right now. He can't be with you. And I don't want to be ageist, but honey, you're 19 years old. You're just getting started. I, I know what it's like to be in the recently out gay duckling phase where you kind of imprint on a guy who shows you a, a good time and, and some affection. And you, you imagine like the life you could have with this person, the boyfriend he could be to you. And you become really invested, not in who he really is, but who you imagined he might be. And you can carry that imagination into your next relationship. That's not something he gave you or something only he can be to you. That's something that you now know that you have the capacity to want and imagine and to create for yourself. But you're going to have to find a person that you can actually create that life with. I don't think it's this guy. And, and rarely do people wind up in lifelong LTRs with someone that they hooked up with at 19 on vacation. Hi, Dan. I am a female. I'm in a heterosexual marriage. I have two kids and I've had something on my mind since I've been a little girl. Um, I've always had a strange fear of becoming a lesbian. I found out two girls could like each other at about 12 and it kind of worried me and freaked me out. I've never had fantasies of being with a woman um, in, a, in an intimate relationship nor sexual fantasies as a little girl. But as I got older, I do have an arousal for girl on girl. It does turn me on and it scares me that I could um, one day possibly decide I want to be in a relationship with a woman and I don't want my marriage to end because of that. But I've had a desire for a very long time to be eaten out and I actually have never been eaten out. I, not even by my husband of seven years, he has told me that he finds it kind of gross. Therefore, it has made me insecure. My sex life has never really been what I've wanted it to be, but I do also get off to woman and um, man, And but it is still something that I kind of want to put to rest with my mind. It, am I a lesbian or am I a heterosexual or am I just fantasizing? It is something that I just kind of want to put to rest and eat my mind at ease with. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, coming to us live from her COVID safety bunker, Erin Gibson, co-host of the Terrific Throwing Shade podcast and author of Feminasty, The Complicated Woman's Guide to Surviving the Patriarchy Without Drinking Herself to Death. How's the drinking going where you are, Erin? Hey, you know what? I used to quit drinking in January. It was a bad time. <laughs> Have you revisited that decision or are you sticking with it? I've had some moments where I've been tempted by the mezcal sitting on the um, refrigerator, but I haven't weirdly wanted it. It's very strange. 
I don't like being this connected to my feelings. <laughs> well, Very scary. Well, uh, I don't want to undermine anyone out there who's sober uh, and wants to stay sober. But can I ask if uh, your new sobriety like forbids pot too? Because I would not be getting through this without <laughs> all of the edibles that I have hoarded. No, I have not given up pot. So I have CBD sticks. I got, I got, I got THC patches. I got the whole thing. I think that's the right way. You know, I barely drink anymore, and I and I don't miss it. But oh my god, pot not only I think makes that possible, but pot keeps me sane. In a way, alcohol didn't. Alcohol makes yeah. you like dumb and more aggressive. Pot makes you calm and more reflective. I think pot is just better for us. I don't like myself day after alcohol. I do like myself day after pot. So take it from me and Aaron, ladies and gentlemen, give up the Budweiser, pick up the Bud. You'll be wise. That's terrible. I don't know why I'm saying that. Let's talk about this person's problem. That's a, gr- that's a great t-shirt. I'm into it. <laughs> uh, you know, I've always liked to say that, you know, advice, some people get on me about having credentials. I hope you're not nervous about coming on and giving sex advice. People say, well, you know, you, what credentials do you have? And if you look up advice in a dictionary, it says opinion about what could or should be done. The only credential you need is someone asked. And who's really an expert anyway? Nobody, which means everybody is. Uh, Particularly your uncle when it comes to your conspiracy theorist uncle, totally an expert about uh, coronavirus. So, But this woman, she seems to be an expert on her own desire patterns, don't you think? I have to be honest with you. This triggered me in a very deep way because I went to high school um, in Texas and there is a thing in Texas. Um, and I think this is probably true for a lot of the South. I don't know where this woman is from, but a icky, icky vagina attitude of mm-hmm. I'm not putting my mouth on that. And so when I heard her say that her husband doesn't do that, I was immediately connected to this woman because I think that's if, if, if there's any reason I became a feminist, it's because of that. <laughs> not just doesn't do it, but informed her that he finds the thought of it, much less doing it, gross. And she married him anyway. I know. Well, here's the thing. It's like, it's like in the South, your, your autonomy is so, is so erased from you as a teen or a, a youth. You don't feel like you have the right to demand that in a relationship. And that's what made me sad about this, is that she never thought that she's just now realizing like, oh, maybe I don't like this. Well, what she seems to – what I don't get and I can't square is she would really like someone to eat her pussy and yet she's terrified at the thought of being a lesbian. Girl, if you're a lesbian, you would be totally getting your pussy eaten. You're going to be you're going to be the tiger king of pussy eating, <laughs> receiving. Exactly. That doesn't make any sense the, but you get it. The tiger king of pussy receiving. It totally I, makes sense now that you unpack it. There's a – there's just this – there's this hesitation I, and I understand it like when you grow up in – in regions of the world where like heteronormative behavior is the thing you have to do. And if you deviate it all from that, you're an outcast. It's very hard to, to square that, especially, I don't know if she's in the small town or wherever she is, but the disappointment that people may or may not have by you living your truth, it really pales in comparison um, to the things that you're going to get when you live exactly the way you want to live. She doesn't, seem to know what her truth is though. She is, she says she's into girl on girl. She fantasizes about being with women, but she still gets off on uh, heterosexual sex. 
And yet the, the, the choice, the binary choice that she has constructed for herself that's terrorizing her is that either she is a straight lady who is married to a straight man who won't eat her pussy and her only other option is going full les as if there isn't some midpoint. Middle ground. Mm-hmm. Bisexual, apparently not a word that wherever it was she grew up, was she was ever heard or thought to Google. It's you know when when we have a crazy ex girlfriend juggernaut that's that's giving us songs like uh, about bisexuality, I feel like there's no excuse to not think that's an option. I also wonder if if there's part of her that is because there's children involved now, and there's probably a stickiness to that of feeling like oh I I I can't explore this other stuff because I'm in I'm I'm I made this decision this is what I deserve kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, almost punitive in a way of, oh, I didn't fix this soon enough in my life or explore this. So this is the reality I'm stuck with. But, you know, I would say the first problem that I see in, in, I think there's a lot of stuff to unpack with her question, but number one is, what do you think you deserve in your relationship? And how, how can you start taking steps to get that? And if it's, you can't convince your husband that you want a normal, healthy, sexual transaction you got to you got to figure that out because that's not changing. That person's not changing. And there are a lot of husbands out there who aren't 100% opposed to their wives getting with other women. Kind of a cliche. Yeah. And that might be a a conversation that you can have with your husband and maybe porn can be your way to broach the subject. There's a lot of girl girl guy porn out there. There's a lot of straight guys who watch girl on girl porn. If you know your husband watches some of that girl on girl porn, if you are familiar with his browser history, enough to know that, then you should be able to discuss it at least as, as, as fantasy and maybe get your rocks off that way. Yeah. And there's also a thing too. And I think this takes like almost a saintly attitude, but a lot of guys who don't feel like cunnilingus is like their thing or poo poo it, or, you know, have like vagina shame. It's because they don't know what they're doing and they don't even know where to start. So if there's some like, Mother Teresa, patience you could have with this person and say, like, here's what I would like you to do step by step. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that could help overcome. I don't know how much she loves this person. Um, but if there's work to be done, it's holding this person's hand into doing the right thing. I personally am a very, I'm a very rash person. I'd say dump him <laughs> but, <laughs> and get on with your life. But that's too, you know, I know that's not like, that's not an option for everyone always. But there, there's, there does seem to be a fear factor in this. Yeah, and just as there's a difference, you know, there's a point between, you know, being a lesbian and off on your own fucking girls or being with a guy, you can be bisexual. There's a point in between, you know, getting out of this relationship to get your needs met uh, and staying in the relationship and never getting your needs met. And that's figuring out an accommodation that allows you to stay in the relationship while also getting your needs met, which is a conversation about becoming monogamish, about some sort of hall pass, about whether it would be all right if you hooked up with other women with or without him, that that's a conversation that you can have. And it seems to me that if you're thinking about leaving him over this, then why not throw the Hail Mary pass and have that conversation? Because you might be able to stay with him and get what it is that you want with other bisexual women. And there are three times as many bisexual women as lesbian women. Most bisexual women are in relationships, it seems, with straight men. 
every day I get letters and calls from women who are like, oh, I'm bi, but I'm with a man. How do I, you know, find somebody? How do I get a lesbian to sleep with you? Don't get a lesbian to sleep with you. Get another bi woman who's got a straight guy at home to sleep with you. There's more of you than win, there are win, of lesbians. Win, win, win. Yes, yes. Win, 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 win. Can you hang around for a couple more calls? Of course. Hey, Dan, Nancy, youth. So two of my siblings and I are currently in a bit of a disagreement with our parents, uh, in particular our mother, over their refusal to take self-isolation seriously. Um, my dad is over 60 now, and he has a long history of respiratory problems. And my grandmother, my mom's mom, recently had to move back in with my parents because she's 90 and suffering from Alzheimer's. But in spite of this, my parents recently attended a dinner party with two of their friends who just returned from vacation in Florida and were told to self-isolate for 14 days but didn't. So when my brother, who is an MD, heard about this, he called mom up to tell her that she can't just do that kind of thing, and she was quick to tell him about how great her immune system is because of her crystal healing frequency, broth, diet, whatever the fuck. And she basically hung up on him, and she hasn't spoken to any of us since. And now we're worried that if something did go wrong, she wouldn't tell any of us about it. So our mom has kind of always been into that natural healing alternative medicine bullshit for a long time. And usually it's like, whatever, like just let her drink her raw milk. But right now there are stadiums full of dead bodies in Italy and Spain, and I think it's time to get real about this. And honestly, sometimes it's like having a mega parent. Like, she completely distrusts anything that the media says about health. She spends all of her money on these, like, seminars and workshops traveling around the world to learn about Reiki and homeopathy and whatever else. And it's getting harder and harder to talk to her about anything without her bringing up fringe health conspiracies like coronavirus was agitated by the Chinese 5G networks that are radiating our cells or whatever. And dad just kind of goes along with whatever is her latest thing. But it's hard because I know she's also basically been watching her own mother slowly deteriorate over the past year and a half due to the Alzheimer's. And I want to be there to support my mom as much as I can. But how can I let my parents know that I love them, but also show them that they're potentially hurting people? There's another way to look at this, and that's an accelerated inheritance. Oh, I don't know this term. Well, just, you know, that's the upside. If mom and dad can't be reasonable. Oh, with you're it. saying getting the money faster. <laughs> yeah, and mom and dad are going to be <laughs> irrational. What can you do? There's a lot of people out there who are in this situation where they're pleading with their parents who are probably, if not plugged into alt-medicine bullshit online, or plugged into Fox News bullshit on the television and, and are not being reasonable or rational about this, who think that they're magic and special because they can see the conspiracy that everybody else has fallen for. And what can you do? You know, there was a point at which my siblings and I stopped talking with my dad about politics, particularly immigration, because his brain has been seized by Fox fucking news. And there's no point to having that conversation. There's no risk to him in avoiding that conversation. He's not going to drop dead because he believes bullshit about immigrant caravans. There's risk here. But if your parents can't be reasoned with, your parents can't be reasoned with, maybe you just stop talking to them about it and cross your fingers and hope they don't get sick and die because they went to a dinner party. I mean, it's truly irrational behavior. And 
I think the person that I'm that I'm saddest for in the situation is Mima, trapped in that house. Although she probably doesn't know what's going on, but I would say like, I mean, look, I just had a situation where my dad mismanaged his life for the last eight years, and he basically hit rock bottom and had a bunch of cancer, and like, you know, was basically homeless, and I had to like step in in a phase of my life. I'm calling you're the parent now, dog, and yeah. um. Look, if it makes you feel better to say your piece and say, this is why I think, look, I care about you. I love you. This worries me. And, you know, I've said my piece, but grandma can't be with you. Like, I'm not going to let you get grandma sick. And you take grandma away. Like, you step in as the parent and do the right thing. Um, I don't think you can, like, keep them under lock and key as your parents. But grandma uh, certainly doesn't need to be a victim in this. If you're in a position to take her. In the middle of the night. <laughs> Abscond with grandma. I'm in, uh, I'd like to toss out, you know, the advice I frequently give to young queer kids who are coming out to their families who aren't reacting well. Your only leverage over your parents as an adult child is your presence. Mm-hmm. And you have to be willing to use that leverage. And if your parents want to behave recklessly, if they won't listen to reason, if they won't listen to you, I would advise the caller and his siblings to be prepared to use the leverage of your presence. You know, mom, I'm not going to talk to you while you, you know, pop off all this bullshit about crystals saving you from Corona, which is just the flu and a hoax. It's bullshit. I'm getting off the phone now. Call me when you want to talk about something else and then send an email follow up excoriating your mother for being so reckless. And then when you get her on the phone, if she wants to make excuses, get off the phone. Make yourself less present and less available to your parents unless they're willing to listen to reason. I love that advice. And I think it's also like, I'm reading this book called The Middle Passage, which is about basically like second adulthood. And when you start shedding the the expectations and the upbringing that your parents have, have placed on you and you start becoming your own person. And what happens is too, you'll see parents when you start doing, um, doing this, this, this kind of thing where you remove your presence, they because they always see you as a reflection of themselves or an extension of themselves. And it, it hurts them so deeply because there's this narcissism of, well, you're just a little version of them. Mm-hmm. And how could you do this? How could you ignore them? And I think on that level too, it cuts, cuts them in such a um, really satisfying way. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's an odd way of putting it, but okay. I, I can see that. <laughs> I mean, not that there should be sad, but I mean, you have, like, like you said, what leverage do you have? You can't take their money away. You can't take, you can't send them to their room. You can't, there's no actual like punitive thing you can do other than say, you're not getting my time and you're not getting my response and you're not getting anything. It's going to be screaming to the void. I wonder how many of these uh, elderly boomer parents out there behaving badly aren't doing it to seek negative attention you know, to seek attention, although negative attention from their grown children. You know, I know that me and my siblings basically got on the phone with my dad in a way we haven't for a long time to plead with him to stop having the coffee clutch at his house in the retirement community lives in in Arizona that they've been having for 20 years with 20 to 30 of their neighbors that they needed to stop doing that because they were continuing to do it and didn't quite see the risk to them yet because COVID at the time was just a problem in China and New York and Seattle. And they were safe in Arizona with all the old folks. And of course they weren't. And now COVID's on their block, but we all, we all got on the phone with dad. He loves it when we all got on the phone, get on the phone with him. And if your parents get it in their heads that if they go to dinner parties and do reckless, stupid things that they'll get a call from their kids 
Mm-hmm. Could be part of the problem. It's the ignore the bad behavior, reward the good. Yes. With elderly adults <laughs> who should know better, but don't. I mean, look, that whole generation is such a victim of the greatest generation coming home from war and basically ignoring them. And they're just desperate for any kind of attention, good or bad. Hi, this is Alyssa over in PA. I have a really quick, simple question that only a guy could answer, I think. So how do you prevent having a burning feeling on people's faces when they make out if someone's clean shaven? And, you know, I've Googled it and all that comes up is that I should put Vaseline on my face and that's not happening. So if you could just give me some tips on how you're not burning someone else's face or skin with like your stubble or if there's just a better razor to use, let me know. So, Aaron, uh, you're a lady person who sometimes makes out with uh, male persons, if I understand correctly. Mm hmm. Do you have mm-hmm. this problem with yeah. freshly shaven men on the face? You make out on the face, but not just on the face. I hope you weren't shaming the rest of the parts of a man's body that might need. No, attention. no, no. I kiss all of the all the man's body gets my gets my lips on it. <laughs> Do you have this problem with a freshly shaven man getting razor burn? You know, my husband has a very short beard, and it bothers. I have very sensitive face skin, and it bothers me regardless, clean shaven or otherwise. And so, so that's why you have an inch of Vaseline on your face is, wherever you go. In case your I'm husband's going to kiss you. If, if I fall on my face, I slide right down the street. <laughs> you cannot stop me because I'm just slippery as all get out. So do you just not kiss the husband then? What do you do? No, I do. I just deal with it. I mean, I just step up or lip it literally. But um, it's, it is a problem because, well, I have, so my husband does condition his beard, which doesn't really help. But the clean shaven thing like unless you start kissing a man the minute he has shaved, there's there's going to be like, you know, stubble. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the answer is. Don't I, this this I hadn't even thought it was a problem until I heard this call and I realized that it's a problem. That's how ingrained my own patriarchal status is. Is that I'm <laughs> like, oh, but no, it's okay. I'll I'll just well, take it. It's, but, it's but, okay if it hurts. You know, like. The king of France said, you know, Paris is worth a mass. Um, is a, a little razor burn worth some ass if it's quality ass, if you really <laughs> like the sex and there are some, you know, physical after effects, you know, a sore hole and some sore skin around your mouth. <laughs> is that not a price of admission we're willing to pay for hot sex with someone that we like? Yeah. I mean, look, there's been many times where I've made the mistake of shaving all my pubic hair off and it does not grow back in a very good way it is full like you know spikes uh, in a running a gauntlet kind of situation <laughs> you fall in and you're dead and and, and, I saw, and I, you were an extra in the indiana jones movie the last one right yes all the stunts in indiana jones are based on my pubic hair shaving <laughs> expedition <laughs> but i mean it hasn't stopped anybody mm-hmm because it's a fresh mission. It hasn't stopped bang. anybody from getting getting the holy grail, which is what I call my pussy. I think the only intervention that you can can reasonably deploy, you know, there's making out where someone is basically a little too aggressively grinding their face against yours. And there's yes. making out where somebody is, you know, kissing you in a very sensual and passionate way, but they're pushing their lips toward you rather than pulling your face 
basically across their face rather than sandpapering your face with theirs. They're reaching out to you with their lips and making out. And maybe you can convince someone whose style is to grind their face into yours rather to use their lips and (laughs) make a bit more of an effort and, and reach a little so there's less skin to stubble contact on your end. But I don't know. There's a hot guy and somebody told me that the the consequence of getting with that hot guy was a razor burn the next day. I would I would deal. I would take that deal. I would take it. Or I would and, and if I wanted to stay with that person, I would say, "Have you thought about fillers?" Fillers. And just oh get my God. big Lisa <laughs> Renna lips. <laughs> That's an LA job. I totally it took me a minute cuz I'm here in Seattle where people you don't see people walking around. <laughs> people are real? Yeah, you don't see people walking around where you go, "Oh god, somebody just got their lips done." No, the biggest problem in LA right now is that people's fillers are, are dissolving and uh we're seeing what everyone really looks like. What their that's lips the biggest, actually look like. That's the COVID-19 out yeah. Well, we had a, a tragic COVID-19 incident in my house yesterday because my husband had to give me a haircut. <gasps> How was it? It was it was a little traumatic, it? but less traumatic than the 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 Irish Catholic Jufro that was reemerging on my head because my hair doesn't grow out and down; it grows straight the fuck up. <gasps> it's kid and play hair. Yeah, 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 yeah. Eraser head. Oh, hair. yeah, yeah. This is I'm I'm. I feel like it's time for look. I'm I'm down for all the women who are coming out of of uh, quarantine are going to be fully gray. I feel like we're going to have people just embracing their their natural their natural curls, their natural color. It's going to be bad. And once everybody emerges from quarantine, it's not like the salons are all going to instantly reopen. And if you know, a lot of them are going to go out of business and the ones that do reopen, they're going to have waiting lists. So it's not like the day when we're told we can leave the house again, everybody's roots and lips and crow's feet get the spackle that they were denied in isolation. There's going to be a long waiting list for that spackle. I say we just dive in. We dive into naturalness. We dive into our real faces. We dive into, and we see who loves us in the end. That's who really loves us. Yeah, let's Judy Dench this shit. If they shit. stick around for that, what's Judy Dench going to do? No, no, no. Let's Judy Dench this shit. She obviously isn't oh. getting facelifts and Botox. She's just like, her face is her face. Let's Meryl Streep this shit. Let's embrace our- I love it. Our whatevers. Even if they're covered with razor burn. Exactly. And I think I'm I'm proud of this um, caller for saying I'm not going to put Vaseline on my face because that's what the internet told me to do. I'm really proud of, of, of the um, self-esteem levels of, no, this is not about what I can do differently. It's what I, my husband or my boyfriend or my partner can do differently. But you and I... But I don't think there's an answer. Yeah, but you, you know, me, you know, and you, author of Feminacy, the Feminist Bible, we're telling her to keep fucking dudes, though, and just... <laughs> Roll with the burn. Feel the burn. Ber- Bernie doesn't need that catchphrase anymore because Bernie's over. Biden's going to get the nomination. So you should, we should embrace feel the burn to mean making out with. Is nobody, is nobody holding out hope for, for Cuomo? <laughs> I just want to see him with his shirt off at the gym to know. I want to know whether there are tit rings under there. Dan, I love you. I love that that's what you're, you're watching him like, you know, do the right thing on TV, but you're meanwhile thinking. This is this is what I really want. This I, is not the content I, I want. I can do more than one thing at a time. I can keep up with the news and watch Tiger King. I can watch Cuomo's press conference and take away the information I need and also carve out a little time to speculate about his tits. 
They're not mutually exclusive. Thank God. Everybody who said, like, why are you talking about this? There are more important things. It's like, we've been talking about the more important things all day. We needed a break. Those possible tit rings under Cuomo's shirt were a public service that he did us all. It was really the Tiger King sequel we didn't know was coming. Oh, my God. I mean, I love that you're just putting the information out there, getting people to think in ways, not so linear ways, you know? Well, thank you. Let's open our minds up to all the possibilities of what Cuomo's giving us. Aaron Gibson, author of Feminasty and co-host of the really terrific Throwing Shade podcast. Aaron, thank you for jumping on the phone. It was really fun to get to Thanks have somebody me, to Stay visit safe. with during quarantine. Yeah, I know. We Look, look at what technology has allowed us to do. It's terrible. It's wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. Hi, Dan. I am a mid-30s New Yorker who is a sex worker. I, of course, like everyone else, am practicing social distancing, doing the right thing. But the fact is my clients still want to see me. And it's really difficult to switch to an online sort of thing. And we're making it work and I'm still paying my rent. But my question for you is, I specialize in latex and sort of the weird stuff. Is it possible, is it safe to have sex during this pandemic with a gas mask? Specifically, you know, a sex gas mask, like a real 100% face covered gas mask with filters. And I could sanitize and do all of those things. Is there a way that I can still meet with my clients and be safe? Is it possible for you to meet up with clients wearing a gas mask? Sure, of course, totally possible. Is it safe? No, no, it is not safe. Someone who has been infected with this coronavirus is often typically asymptomatic for potentially weeks. And so if you have someone over who is asymptomatic and you are wearing a gas mask, say you're fully leg text up, every inch of skin covered and a really effective gas mask, that person who has entered your apartment who potentially could have COVID-19 and be asymptomatic is breathing, is maybe clearing his throat, coughing, maybe sneezes. Maybe you have a cat and this person who has COVID is also allergic to cats and sneezes a couple of times. COVID, the, the coronavirus, this coronavirus, it can live on surfaces. So if you are wearing a gas mask and you get close to someone and they are breathing on you, they may be getting the coronavirus all over your latex, all over your gas mask. And after they leave to remove all of that and to begin to sanitize it, you risk getting it on your hands. You risk inhaling it. It floats in the air. It can sit in the air. That's why they think the six foot of distance that we've been encouraged to maintain when we're in public from other people isn't adequate, might not be adequate. It can like billow around in the air in some ways. It is a hardier virus than many. And so while the interaction, while the sex that you were having, rubbered up, gas mask on with someone, it would be possible. And during the sex, you would probably not risk exposure during the act. It's after it's over with if you've had somebody over who's been exposed and contracted COVID-19 and is not yet symptomatic. It's after it's over that you're at risk. Because it wouldn't just be on your gas mask. It wouldn't just be on your latex cat suit or gloves. It could be on your doorknobs. It could be on your furniture. It could be on your television remote, depending on how close he was to your TV remote when he coughed or sneezed or exhaled. So, yeah, I want to live in a world where people can 
see in person their hot latex fetish model pro dom and create as much joy and pleasure in this life as can possibly be created. And if somebody's joy is going to look very different from somebody else's joy, but no, this would not be safe. Not at the moment, not until there is a vaccine. Hi, Dan. I am a 42-year-old cis-heteroflexible man, and uh, I would like some advice regarding my relationship with my quarantine. Um, I met this woman just over a month ago, picking her up in the wild at a bar, which is remarkable for me because I am an introvert. And, well, she's kind of out of my league, judging purely on appearance. Uh, let's be real. She is the hottest-looking woman to have ever given me so much as a second glance. Now, the NRE with this one is through the roof, and since almost literally the moment I met her, we have spent basically all of our time together, and now that we're quarantined together, it's pretty much 24-7. The sex is phenomenal, the chemistry is great, and here it is, but we have very different apparent views on monogamy and jealousy. Well, I'm not a jealous man. I've previously been a swinger. I've been a friend with benefits wingman. And in fact, an FWB was my wingman the night I met her. And when monogamous and non-monogamous sexual relationships have ended with only a few exceptions, I've remained friends with those people. And that makes sense to me. I would only fuck people I really think are cool. I work hard on building that friendship, and I feel it's silly to throw it away just because we've decided that continuing a romantic or sexual relationship is not right. But she does not see things that way. She finds it offensive, repulsive, beyond irritating that I would even so much as communicate with anyone I've ever fucked. Like... She doesn't want me to be at a party where anyone I've ever fucked was in attendance. Well, that's seriously going to limit our potential social interactions if we're ever allowed to leave the house again because, well, literally the majority of my friends are women I once dated or slept with and their current partners. She wants me to basically abandon all my friends and make new mutual friends with her. She has very few local friends as she immigrated to the U.S. just last summer from Germany. Further complicating things, my housemate is a 26-year-old single woman. One evening, kind of out of the blue, my new girlfriend asked me if I had ever had sex with my housemate. Believing honesty to be the best policy, I said yes six months ago. Well, now she hates my housemate, who is a close friend of mine, and, well, I live with her, too. And it's a big house, but still, they're sharing space. And it is awkward. Not because my housemate doesn't like my girlfriend, rather vice versa. <sighs> We're actively ignoring the issue and enjoying phenomenal sex during quarantine, but really, is this thing workable and how can I be honest about my past and present friendships without feeling like I'm opening up a wound? Is there a way to address this? Though I do self-identify as an ethical slut... I want my sacrificial commitment of monogamy to her to be honored and trusted as I do fully intend and expect to keep it. So your girlfriend, your awful girlfriend, you say recently emigrated to the United States from Germany. And my assumption is that she ran out of guys in Germany who would put up with this bullshit. Is this workable? No, no, this is not workable. The only way to address this situation is to ask your girlfriend of one month to get the fuck out of your house if she can't treat 
your roommate, your housemate, with courtesy. And then you need to tell her you are not going to cut people out of your life. You are not going to abandon your friends, however it is that you met them, even if you happen to have had a romantic relationship with them at one time, to cater to her jealousy. These are red fucking flags. She's trying to isolate you from your social circle, trying to isolate you from your friends. It is an abuser's move. This kind of irrational jealousy is disqualifying. Unless somebody is able to say, this is my problem and I'm going to get over it and I'm working on getting over it and I'm getting my ass into therapy and I realize my irrational jealousy is irrational. Maybe you could be with somebody who said that. And every once in a while, I just need you know, a little extra reassurance because it, sandpaper is an insecurity of mine that I know is unfair to you. If someone can say that about their irrational jealousy and isn't attempting to control you, or blow up your relationships? Okay, maybe that kind of irrationally jealous person you could fuck with. This kind of irrationally jealous a person? Your girlfriend's kind? Yeah, no. Just like all the men in Germany who told her that they wouldn't put up with this shit, which is why she's here now, you have to tell her no, no. She either gets the fuck over this or she gets the fuck out of your life. You say... That she is the hottest woman that you've ever been with. That women in her league typically don't give you a second glance. Well, awesome. I'm really glad for you that you're having some really hot sex with a Heidi Klum or whatever the fuck it is that she looks like. Can you see the strategy in that though? There are people who are super hot, who are controlling and jealous, who will leverage their hotness by fucking people, dating people who are out of their quote-unquote conventional beauty standards league, who are beneath them in the looks rankings because they know that person is aware of that. They know that will result in the person that they're fucking being more reluctant to dump them because when will they ever be with somebody as hot as she is again? It's a kind of leverage that she has over you. It's clear from your call, it's clear from your question that she is, I think, consciously leveraging her looks to bring a man into her life that she can then order around. And the thing about this kind of irrational jealousy is it's never over. It's never enough. You can cut off all of your friends. You can ask your roommate to move out. You can only have mutual friends going forward and she will find new things to be angry and jealous about. It'll be that somebody looked at you funny. It'll be that you laughed at some woman's joke a little too long. It'll be that she caught you looking at porn. There will be more. There will be more ways. A controlling, irrationally jealous piece of shit asshole is never done. Nothing you do will ever be enough because it's not about feeling reassured. It's not about feeling secure. It's about jerking you the fuck around. It's about controlling you and terrorizing you. I think you should ask her to leave. I think you should ask her to go find somewhere else to quarantine. And I think you should apologize to your roommate for having been so stupid as to allow this woman to be shitty to her. And then maybe start hooking up with your roommate again if your roommate's game. Hi, Dan. I am a 29-year-old straight married woman calling from Sydney, Australia. My husband and I have a pretty great relationship. We got married in August last year after being together for eight years. So far, it's been pretty good as far as the marriage thing goes. But I stumbled across something on his phone yesterday and I'm not quite sure how to feel about it. He's in a group chat with a bunch of his guy friends. Mostly they talk about surfing, but they also seem to send each other a lot of pornographic images and short videos of women. 
Some of these photos look like they might have been sent to one of the guys directly by the girl in the photo. And my assumption is that the girl doesn't know her photos being shared with a big group chat of guys. There are also some photos of my husband with what looks like a topless waitress uh, with her tits in his face and her bra on his head. He has told me uh, that he occasionally goes to bars with topless waitresses with his friends and that doesn't really bother me but I guess I just didn't realise he'd participated so enthusiastically. Should he have told me that he was doing this or am I just overreacting a bit? And regarding the exchanging of those pornographic photos... Um, I, of course, don't have a problem with my husband watching porn, but there's something about this group chat that makes me feel really uneasy. I'm not sure if I'm overreacting or not, though. The images might have just been downloaded from the internet, but it still seems kind of creepy to me that they'd all exchange these types of messages. Should I be worried? There's a lot going on here. Your husband is in this group chat with a bunch of other guys, and they are objectifying women. They are sharing these photographs of women objectifying people or being objectified by others isn't necessarily a terrible thing. We are physical objects in this world. What we don't want is to only be seen as objects. There are times we want to be objectified. We want to be appreciated for our physical presence, for our physical being, for our bodies. But we typically prefer to be appreciated for our bodies, to be objectified by someone who also sees us sort of concurrently or parallelly as a three-dimensional human being with wants, needs, desires, and agency. And when you're just swapping images, you're kind of stripping the people in those images of their agency. So what I would encourage you to say to your husband is you understand that, you know, he and his straight friends like to look at naked ladies and occasionally share these images. Makes you a little bit uncomfortable. You want to hear from him that he knows and maybe you just need to hear it again. And you want to hear from him that he knows that women aren't just objects. And hopefully that's something he also proves to you every day in his relationship with you. And so when he says that, of course, women aren't just objects, but they're appreciating these women for their beauty and sharing these pictures to crank each other up, that he knows that these women, even the women in these images, have inner lives and desire and agency of their own. And when you're on the topic of agency, you can ask him about whether these images are from the internet, whether they are porn stars. And you can emphasize that you certainly hope that they aren't and sharing and you can tell him that it would not be okay with you and you would find it terribly offensive if these guys on this large group chat were sharing pictures that had been sent to them in trust. And maybe everybody on the group chat feels like everybody else in the group chat is safe and isn't going to push them out into the world. But if one of them were to not keep it private, if one of them were to upload these photographs or just save them to his phone and forget about it and then his phone got hacked or he put them up onto the internet because he forgot where the photo came from, it could end up violating someone. And you don't want your husband, knowingly or unknowingly, at this moment or after a long chain of accidents and you know forgetfulness about where the pictures came from to participate in a, really a kind of revenge pornography. So I definitely think you should have that conversation with him and then you have to trust him and you have to step back and you have to respect his privacy. You know, people waste a lot of time in relationships policing each other. I want you to stop doing this thing that you do in private with other people that aren't me and that, that doesn't constitute cheating. Uh, and because you were doing it and it bothered me, now I'm going to insist on seeing your phone or I'm going to look on your phone every once in a while or every time you get a text message, I'm going to wonder or demand to see it. And that's 
exhausting and exerting that kind of control over someone else really creates resentment, poisons a relationship. Say your piece and then let your husband in these private chats with his friends do what he's going to do and try to put it out of your mind. As for the topless waitress, when he told you that he went to places with topless waitresses and led you to believe or omitted relevant details so you assumed that he didn't actively take part, that he didn't let topless waitresses put their bras on his head and shove their boobs in his face, yeah, I wouldn't have made that assumption. I would have assumed that if my husband was going to a strip club, he was occasionally getting a lap dance. If I wasn't good with the lap dance or comfortable with the lap dance, I would ask him not to go to the strip club, knowing he probably would every once in a while at a time or in a place where I wouldn't find out about it. Again, I would file this under something relatively harmless where the demand that he never do this again or the demand that he not participate in the way that he had participated ever again in the future if he goes is going to create conflict in the relationship that's a, a waste. You know, so much conflict comes into relationships that policing your partners about small zones of what I like to call erotic autonomy to me seems like a waste of time and effort and a way that a lot of people undermine their relationships and undermine their marriages unnecessarily. You have to cede to your partner, again, that zone of erotic autonomy. I would rather you didn't do that. I know that you get to make your own choices. I don't want to hear about it. That's the consideration that you can demand. You know, it makes me feel uncomfortable to know that you had that woman's boobs in your face. So maybe the next time you have a woman's boobs in your face, don't take a picture so I don't have to stumble over it someday and then feel bad about it. And finally, you know, a, a lot of people in committed relationships feel like their partner should come to them for everything, for every erotic charge. And your husband and his friends are obviously, you know, charging each other up erotically. There's kind of a homoerotic element to that, but we're going to leave that alone when they're sharing these pictures. And when your husband goes to these clubs or, or restaurants where they have topless waitresses, he's deriving an erotic charge from that. You have a right to expect that he honors a monogamous commitment if he's made a monogamous commitment to you. I would encourage you to view what benefit there might be for you personally in the erotic charge your husband is getting from these chats or getting from the waitress in the strip club. If he is feeling affirmed as a, an attractive guy himself when the waitress at the strip club flirts with him for money or he is getting cranked up by these images he's sharing with his friends and the dirty talk that they swap with each other about them and then bringing that erotic energy to you and then coming to you feeling recharged and full of desire and then you benefit because you connect sexually with your husband and maybe you know he got turned on looking at a little bit of pornography turned on looking at these pictures turned on at the topless waitress ihop or wherever the fuck it is they have topless waitresses in australia and then you guys both benefit because it's important in a long-term relationship eight years you've been together to sustain that sexual connection. And sometimes when we're in a long-term relationship, we have to draw inspiration from outside the relationship. We have to get ourselves cranked up, get those erotic juices flowing, and then turn to our partner, not as a masturbatory aid, not as a fleshlight, but turn to our partner, you know, aroused and, and feeling alive and having visited that zone of erotic autonomy, being all cranked up and then excited to be with your monogamous partner and to catch a groove then with your monogamous partner. Maybe what lit the spark that day was the topless waitress or the porn he watched, but you were warmed by the fire. 
Good morning, Dan. I'm sending you guys this advice on how I'm getting through COVID-19 from Pennsylvania. Just wanted to advise people to do the same thing you do with a partner to try to keep things interesting. You always say, you know, have sex different places in the house, have sexual adventures, have a sexual adventure with yourself, masturbate someplace beside your bed. I tried out my balcony under a blanket this morning because there was no one around outside and it was quite thrilling. So give that a shot, folks. That is good advice. Shaking things up, breaking out of your routine, getting out of ruts, not just for partnered people, people who are alone, people who are sheltering in place alone, don't have a sex partner. Getting online isn't your only option for getting off. You can explore solo sex. You can get out of bed. You can get out of your usual spot where you usually masturbate, masturbate someplace else, shake up your routines. We should all be always looking to shake up our routines. It's fun to establish a routine that can be pleasurable. It's good to have a go-to place, a go-to spot where you feel sexy and empowered and everything feels good. Then you have to know when to break out, break the mold, try something new, establish a new routine, create a new pattern that then you can also break out of and move away from down the road. Thanks for the call. Great advice. Hello, Dan and uh, tech-savvy at-risk youth. Uh, I am a cis male, straight living in the Midwest. I've been married for 11 years, and we have a six-year-old and a four-month-old. Looking back, would we have chosen to have a baby knowing they'd be four months old during a quarantine? Probably not, Uh, but here we are. She's an essential employee. She works in a residential facility. She needs my wife needs to to be at work. I'm staying at home with the kids and I work at a nonprofit and actually we've done a ton of fundraising and my back's been working harder than ever while also taking care of children and homeschooling and all that. And that's not, you know, that's not a problem. That is what it is. It's hard, but it's hard for everybody. My problem is suddenly we're in quarantine and I, you know, still want to have sex and I still want to be intimate with my wife. And you know, I'm with the kids all day, um, which is again, totally fine, but I would love to be intimate with her, you know, whenever possible. And right now, uh, you know, we're still co-sleeping with the child. That's what we've chosen to do. She sleeps, the four month old sleeps really well, you know, in the room with us. And, but she's like, my wife is terrified of uh, her waking up while we're making love. And, she, you know, obviously during the day is out because my wife's at work. And then plus I'm pretty tired when she gets home, but you know, I can overcome my tiredness and to have sex with my wife. <laughs> I request it often. Um, she often denies me because there's just so much going on. And there's, I'm just curious if, if others have ideas on logistics of, okay, we have a six-year-old and a, a four-month-old. When do we find time uh, to have sex? And I know you've said before, have somebody come over, watch the kids, obviously with this quarantine in place, that's the main problem. We've actually told my parents and other friends and things before, it's like, hey, come babysit. We're going to go upstairs. Or hey, you want to come take the kids on a walk? But suddenly that's not uh, an option anymore. And, you know, opening the relationship is definitely not an option. I, I was feeling a little bit stuck on how to get creative about about when that can happen. And I'd love to hear your thoughts or thoughts from um, others in your audience. Usually when we get a call from a husband who's frustrated that he and his wife aren't having sex and they have a four-month-old infant at home, it's the wife who's home alone all day with the infant and maybe 
physically exhausted, emotionally exhausted, touched out at the end of the day when her husband comes home, breastfeeding. And it's kind of an irrational request on behalf of the husband to expect that four months after crapping a new human being into the world and after taking care of that infant all day long, that the wife is going to be excited about sex, about the exertion of sex or even the additional physical contact or demands that sex places on a person. But this situation is a little different. Your situation is a little different. You're the one at home all day with the infant. You're the one who may be touched out. I assume you aren't breastfeeding, but you're doing everything else. And yet your wife is coming home and not wanting to have sex with you and you're getting a little frustrated. I think it's pretty irrational for someone to expect to be having sex four months after bringing an infant home. I think you should adjust your expectations. Maybe your wife would be a little bit more game and a little bit more interested in engaging with you sexually if it wasn't intercourse that you wanted to have, if you weren't talking about the job that is a blowjob or PIV, vaginal penetration or anal penetration or any other kind of penetration. If what you were wanting from your wife was intimacy and contact and perhaps mutual masturbation, something that's low effort, low stakes, low commitment, and yet extremely pleasurable, maybe your wife would be more up for it, more game. So you might want to adjust your ask if indeed that is the problem. Something else you might want to do, get your kid or kids out of your bed. Don't do the co-sleeping thing. It sounded like there was just one kid in your bed, maybe the infant, maybe the six-year-old is already in their own room, in their own space. You should, as quickly as you possibly can, get that infant, get that four-month-old out of your bed. You can put that four-month-old in a crib, in the room, as a transitional measure, but then off into the other room with the other child, or if you've got a giant house, into the infant's own room, into a nursery, get thee to a nursery, go, four-month-old. But even if you're going to continue to do this co-sleeping thing, which I'm not a fan of, maybe you can tell from the tone of my voice, the objection your wife raises, you know, the infants in sleep in bed with you, probably between you, for safety's sake, you don't want the infant at the edge of the mattress and you guys want to have sex, you have options beyond having sex in the bed and risking waking the baby up and then traumatizing the baby, <laughs> I guess, although I don't think that would traumatize the baby at all to open their eyes and see that mush of flesh that they don't quite understand at four months. You have an option, which is to get on the fucking floor. You can stay in the room without shaking the bed. You can go to another room. You can go fuck or mess around or engage with each other. little mutual masturbation, like I suggested. On the sofa, in the kitchen, on the counter, you can get out of bed for 12 minutes if the four-month-old is indeed very, very much asleep. If you're worried about the four-month-old rolling around and rolling off the bed, then stay in the room. Fuck on the floor. Fuck in the closet. Fuck in the bathroom if you have a master bath so you can hear what's going on in the other room. And by fuck, of course, I don't mean intercourse. I mean mutual masturbation, some exploration of each other's bodies, even just some contact that makes you feel bonded again and connected again, that will lay the foundation for the reemergence in time of your full-blown, everything-on-the-menu, on-the-menu sexual life. But to expect that now, four months after your wife gave birth, yeah, dude, you have to adjust those expectations downward. You can ask, but make your ask reasonable and be considerate. 
All right, before we get to response calls, let's read your tweets. Jen M. tweets, considering episode 702 of the Savage Lovecast and the caller asking about birth control, sounds like she's on a hormonal IUD, which can eliminate her cycle for sure, but there are copper slash silver IUDs out there that allow for a regular cycle. Hashtag Savage Lovecast. I know that. I don't know why I spaced that. I totally should have brought that up. Thank you, Jen M., for tweeting that at me. It makes it likelier that I will remember it. Next time, Sean Bustani tweets, Savage Lovecast is a horrible name for a podcast about sex and relationships. Thank you, Sean, for your input. You're about 13, 14 years too late, but uh, we'll take that under advisement. And finally, the Calvary Cross Baptist Church doesn't tweet. It's on their church sign. Happy Easter, everybody. We serve a risen Savior, not a dead Jew, to which I would say, well, he was a Jew his whole life and very briefly a dead one. If you buy the resurrection stuff, they tacked onto the Gospels as they went along. The Gospels, the Mad Libs of sacred texts. But sure, okay, Calvary Cross, Baptist Church, happy Easter, your ass is showing. If you want your tweet or your church sign read on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast, or say something so outrageously assholy that it comes to my notice, and I will read it on the Savage Lovecast. And now your response calls. Hi, Dan. This is in response to uh, your caller in episode 702, who was afraid of people finding her journals when she died. What you should do is scan them. Uh, if you scan them all and put them in a PDF file, you can hide them in the same file on your computer that you hide your porn in, and hopefully nobody can find that either. Or you can put it onto a, a memory stick and have it... Uh, password protected and you'll have it for as long as you want and if somebody else finds it it can access it but yeah scan them hi dan i'm just calling in response to the woman on episode 702 who was saying that she wanted to try more natural forms of birth control and be more in touch with her body and she sort of tossed off the possibility of using a homeopathic method homeopathic in square quotes here because yeah don't use homeopathic birth control Homeopathy is not, as a lot of people think it is, just a code word for, you know, herbal or natural medicine. It is actually a completely ridiculous quack belief about how medicines work. Literally, when you buy a, quote, homeopathic remedy, you're buying water. The belief is that the more you dilute something, the more effective it is. Don't do this. Please, 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 if you are trying to avoid pregnancy, do not use a homeopathic method. They do not work. Just wanting to make sure that that got hammered home. Hey, this is for the woman who's quarantined with her girlfriend's parents and is worried about making too much noise while having sex. There's a much simpler solution that I'm surprised Dan missed. Just play loud music. Or if you're worried that will kill the mood, go to her parents one night and suggest firmly that they watch that Netflix show that they've been getting really into with headphones. They'll get what's going on, but so what? I'm sure they are just as keen to not hear you bang as you guys are. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, you can give us a buzz at 206-302-2064. Or, better yet, you can use the Voice Memo app on your own phone to record your question and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. We appreciate everyone who helps to spread the word about the Savage Lovecast. We don't advertise. We rely on word of mouth and reviews and tweets and people posting to their Instagram stories about the show. We, we really appreciate everybody out there who subscribes to the Magnum. Also, everybody out there who talks up the show. 
Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Aaron Gibson on Twitter at GibblerTron. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with our installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading and stay safe.